0: Uh, you may not be familiar with the name Ernest Lawrence Taylor, but my guess is you're familiar with his poem. Uh, first published in 1888 in the San Francisco Examiner. Uh, since that time, it has become uh, a part of our uh, fabric of our American culture, translated, adapted, uh, movies, television shows, etc. Through the years, it's become so embedded in our own uh, English and American psyche that there's a line or two, and I'm going to grab one, that uh, is actually an, an idiom in our own language. You know, an idiom is where you're, it's, it's a phrase where you say something that has nothing to do with what you're talking about, but everyone knows what you mean. It's raining cats and dogs. What do cats and dogs have to do with rain? Nothing, but what does everyone in the room know I just said? It's pouring down rain outside, a similar line in this poem. In Taylor's poem, the home team from Mudville is losing the baseball game. It's the bottom of the ninth inning. And they will lose, and everyone knows they'll lose, unless someone comes to bat. Who? Unless Casey gets to bat. Problem is, Casey has four players in front of him that have to bat before he does. The first two, out number one, out number two. The next two, the poem tells us, they're no good. It's over. But lo and behold, they get on base. Flynn and Blake end up on second and third base. And the stage is now set. Hope springs anew. He wrote, then from 5,000 throats and more, there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley, it rattled through the dell. It knocked upon the mountain and recoiled upon the flat. For Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. Now, if you remember the poem, Casey is so, let's say, confident, if not cocky. Remember what he does? He doesn't even put the bat on his shoulder. He stands While pitch number one, strike one. He stands while pitch number two, strike two. The crowd is going crazy. Kill the umpire until Casey calms him with his hand, puts the bat upon his shoulder. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence the bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go, and now the air is shadowed by the force of Casey's blow. Turn the page. And the next stanza, the poem turns, does it not? Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children children shout. But there's no joy in Mudville. Why? Mighty Casey has struck out. Now, I read that because somewhere, you see, there's joy. Somewhere there's happiness. Somewhere children laugh, but not in Mudville. Why not in Mudville? Because Mighty Casey has struck out. It's a humorous and yet, I think, a very vivid reminder to us of how the world views joy. That line, don't you? We use that line. There's no joy in Mudville. When do we use that line? When what we hoped would happen doesn't, when what we hoped would never happen doesn't. Does when the fallenness and brokenness of this world, our own bodies and flesh, come crawling on the porch and then break through our front door, we say, There's no joy in Mudville. I'd like to say that I don't slip into this contingent joy. See, that's what that's the, the world's definition of joy it's, like, it's a contingent joy. It's contingent upon certain, certain things happening or certain things not happening. When they do, I have joy. When they don't, I don't have joy. And, and, and I would love to tell you, you know what? I'm beyond that because I've read my Bible. I've studied my Bible. I've been walking with Christ. But the truth of the matter is I slip into contingent joy all the time. The last ten days have made my neck sore, jerking up and down like a roller coaster with this news and then that news, and then this news and then that news. My stomach in knots because this happened then that happened. Oh, this happened then that happened. I am not immune to putting my confidence in joy in Casey's bat. And I think a lot of us have that challenge. And the question for us is, does the Bible teach a contingent joy? Or does it teach something else? Is there a joy that, is there a joy that transcends everything? I mean, literally everything. that can sustain us in such a way that every time Casey strikes out, every time life deals us a blow, every time brokenness becomes our own, we can say, even in this, my joy remains. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. Now we are in our Advent series, Arrival. We're looking at a number of different passages. We're going to look today at a very familiar passage, and it's a very familiar Arrival passage. Y'all, this is, a, this is an Advent passage, but we don't often go to this passage in the Christmas season. It's a cosmic Advent passage, if you will. We, in our Advent wreath, you know, we, have, we, we, we lit the candle of hope. With The candle of love. And what are we doing today? Well, we're going to light the candle of joy. And I want to suggest that in this mystical, mysterious passage of Advent, that John has some words to say to us about a non-contingent reason for joy. It's going to take a little work to get there, so you're going to need to stick stick with me. We're going to look at verses 14 to 18. But to get there, I need to grab the first few verses because they provide us the context. Follow along in your Bibles as I read God's word to us today. John 1 begins, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Note the change now to a pronoun. He, oh wait, the word is a he. He was in the beginning with God. God, that means this he, this word, is eternal, (laughs) you know, before time, always existed. What about this word? All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, or the darkness did not overwhelm it. Uh, One cannot, you cannot read these first words in John's gospel and say that the Bible never says or claims that Jesus is God. You cannot get there from here. This is just absolutely in our face that John says Jesus is God. And now, to to, to reinforce it, and again, we could do much more to do this, but let's just do this. He's talking about the word in verse 1. Skip down to verse 14. And it becomes absolutely clear. Our text for today, follow along in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him. So a man, John, testified testified about this man and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me, for of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. This passage is telling us that non-contingent joy is rooted Grounded and sourced in the incarnation. Incarnation is not a Bible word, it's a Latin word. It means in flesh, put on flesh. It, it helps us understand that, that in the incarnation, God, who is spirit, took on hu- humanness. He became a man. Here's the mystery. That there was no diminishing of godness. There was no commingling of godness and humanness. Fully God, fully human in the man Jesus. The implications of this are mind-boggling. You understand the sacrifice for our sin. No one could satisfy the eternal wrath of God, but an eternal God... No one could satisfy the the death we deserved, but a man had to be a man who died. Is this a mystery? Is it not? The God-man Jesus incarnate, enfleshed for us. Jesus is going to show us, or John is going to show us some things about Jesus. I'm going to say three things. About the incarnation, I'm going to say it this way, that secure our joy. Three things about the incarnation that secure our joy. And it puts biblical joy on a wholly different plane than worldly happiness. Now, I hope some of you are tracking with me and would be actually saying right now, well, Lord, I just read this. this verse, these verses don't say anything about joy. I don't even see it in there. Well, I think they do. Stick with me on this because we're going to think biblically. Okay, We're thinking the scripture. Let's start here. Can we agree that these verses are saying that God has come to us? Can we not? Yeah, I think we can. That's obvious. God has come. Now, we didn't go to him. He has come to us. Uh, we, we can say that with that, and there's so much we could say, but can we not say God has not left us alone? Is, you with me? That's clear in this passage. I think we could summarize these verses with this very familiar phrase, God is with us. Would you agree? I, I, I think we, that's, that's clear. This is telling us God's with us. You remember how Matthew recorded the birth? Matthew... Uh, said it this way, uh, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And he's speaking of Isaiah. And Isaiah said, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name. we just saying it. Emmanuel, which translated means, you tell me, God with us. Well, what does God with us have to do with joy? I'm going to let the psalmist Answer that question. Turn in your Bibles back to the book of the Psalms and go to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Y'all, this is where we, we understand our Bible and our Bible and the, the Scripture interprets Scripture and then we see the whole, you see. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to highlight a few words and a phrase in particular. Psalm 16, the psalmist saying, "The Lord, Verse 5, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I started circling some of these phrases in my own Bible. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. There's joy. Rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. And then this messianic phrase, for you will not, speaking of Christ, you will not abandon my soul to shield, nor will you you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And then verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. Now I want you to stop there because I want you to think about it. Life, security, gladness, joy, I will not be shaken. Where, where, where is this? You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is what? fullness of joy. In in your presence is fullness of joy. If we're going to follow Michael's maxim, which we need to, don't let the world teach you theology, then we don't let the world teach us about joy and we let the Bible teach us theology and the theology of joy. Let me say it negatively first. Joy is not the absence of Joy is not getting the gift you want. Joy is not your struggle resolved. Joy is not the pain removed. Joy is not everything turning out the way you hoped it would turn out. Joy is not being pain-free. It is not the removal of suffering. It is not the year-end bonus. Joy is not the cancer in remission. Joy is not the tragedy avoided. Joy is not that my kids turn out great. Joy is not my reputation remains intact. Joy is not that all the family dysfunction evaporates and goes away. Joy is not financial security. Joy is not a conservative in the White House. Joy is not the eradication of ISIS. Joy is not the world singing in perfect harmony. None of it. The Bible teaches this core principle, and this is all I got for you today. The presence of God is the presence of joy. This is the message of the gospel and the message of the scripture. And in the incarnation, you see, that he came and he's with us, you see. That's the definitive statement. That he's present. That he's with us. And nothing I listed. Go through the list I went through. Nothing I listed, you see, can diminish, destroy, thwart, remove, The presence of God with us. And therefore none of those things can touch, you see, our joy. Biblical joy is not a roller coaster that rises and falls. It is an anchor that holds when the seas are calm and when they are raging in a storm. I want to give you three things very quickly uh, about the incarnation. So we've got to go back to John. I'm going to flip back to John chapter 1. Three things that John tells us about Christ, if you will, that anchors and secures our joy. This is a bit repetitive on the first one. It's obvious, but I want to remind us of it. What secures our joy is the presence of Jesus the presence of jesus verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us when we read that word dwelt and this is in your margins i'm sure it it literally is the word tabernacled Uh, he pitched his tent among us now you know we understand our bibles we always ask ourselves what did the original audience see here now when they heard tabernacled where would their minds have gone where, where would they have started thinking historically? Old Testament, right? They, oh, the tabernacle. Oh, oh, oh the, 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 the tent of meeting. In the Old Testament, when they were in the wilderness, and God designed this tent, and it was the place of God's glory. It's the place that Moses went to meet with God. And God was present with them in the wilderness. Y'all, it was in the center of the camp, so anyone could get up and maybe peer over, look a you know, half a mile down and go... What? Yeah, he's with us, because God's with us. Now, understanding that, I want to just invite us to step back and go, wow, let's put ourselves there, and we literally can. I want us to recognize that like them, y'all, we live. We live in the wilderness. Can I tell you, can I remind you, this is not the promised land. We haven't got there yet. We live between the two advents of Jesus, the first advent. And we're remembering and anticipating, you know, doing both now because he came. But then we know that he's coming again to set all things right. But in between, can, we, we can use this image that we live in this wilderness. But God's present. See, we don't live in the wilderness and go, this is crappy. This is terrible. I don't want to live. No, we live in the wilderness, but we, live, we can live with joy. Why? Because he's with us. And he has promised he will take us to the promised land. Men and women, he will get us to the edge of the Jordan. He will take us across and we will be with him forever and ever and ever. But not yet. And so we walk. And you know what happens? We get pebbles in our shoes and dust in our eyes. Because he is present, Jesus is present, we can have joy even with dust in our eyes. There's a second anchor of joy in the text, and I'm going to call it the provision of Jesus. Okay, So you've got the presence of Jesus, now you have the provision of Jesus. Verse 16, for of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You know, there is a limit to any earthly resource that you can garner and gather to secure your joy. I I mean this I say, there is not enough money on the planet to secure your joy. I don't care if you had it all, you see. There, there, there's no achievement you could achieve. There's no success or fame you could get to, so that your joy is now secured. You're gonna keep you're gonna keep bad things out. You, you, you've done it. You've, no, you haven't because you can't. There's no there's no Policy, there's no law, there's no legislation that can secure our joy. But Jesus has secured our joy. By his life, his death, his resurrection, his promise, his presence. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He'll take you to himself. This is the security of our joy. And he gives us, as he says here, out of a fullness, grace upon grace. In other words, what he gives us, think about grace upon grace. He gives us the grace we need in the moment we need it. And then he gives us the grace we need in the moment we need it. Then he gives us unlimited supply of God's favor good toward us when we need it. It's provision. It's a bottomless, limitless grace. Have you ever, and I've done, I do this. You ever have those moments of joy? You, you know, it's almost like they're, like they're fleeting. And you go, Oh my gosh, this joy! What did, what did I do to get this? I need it. I need to hold it. Let's do this. Let's do the same thing we did last yesterday. So I got joy again today. No, you can't do that. Why? You know, notice here, joy is received. Did you notice that? You know, joy is a fruit of the spirit. Joy is not something you earn. You can't do something. To get joy. You just receive it. In Christ. And in the moment you need it. He gives it in fullness. And you don't have to squeeze it. You don't have to figure out how to keep it. Just just receive it. Because the next moment you'll need a different grace. And the next moment you'll need a different grace. And the next moment you'll need it. You don't have to hold on to that one. No it's just going to be in the moment. he will give you the grace required and needed. The presence of Jesus, the provision of Jesus. And just this last one, our joy is anchored in the revelation of Jesus. I take that from verse 18. Notice he says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That word explained, it's the Greek word exeoomai. Exegete is what we get from it. Exegete. What does exegete mean? Exegete means to explain. When we teach, we say we exegete the scripture. What does that mean? We, we explain it, we expound it, we, we try and show it in its fullness. What John is saying is that Jesus exegetes the Father. You know, people say to you, Me, you know, I can't believe God would allow this. I can't believe God would do this. and you know there's no arguing in, in that. I think one of the one of the things I would suggest you respond with is just simply, yeah, you know. I don't know what God you're thinking about, but Jesus exegetes God. Jesus shows what God's like. So let's look at Jesus. This is what God is like. And look at the life of Christ. The clearer, the better, the fuller you and I see Jesus. Oh, the clearer, the better, and the fuller we see God. And and you might ask, well, what does seeing God have to do with joy. Well, let me take you back to a story in the Old Testament. Exodus 33. Don't turn there. I'm just going to tell you the story. I think you'll be familiar with it. It's a remarkable conversation between Moses and God. Uh, Moses has come down off the mountain. Man, the people have built that calf, the golden calf. And, uh, you know, I mean, you imagine being Moses trying to lead these people. And you come down after all this, and they got this golden calf. I mean, I go to the humanness of Moses and go, man. He had to be just absolutely lit up, which he was lit up, but also in a sense, this ain't working. You know, I leave you for a while. If there's any point, I think that he thought, "This we're not going to get out of here." God, I can't do it, so to speak. Well, he has this conversation with God. He can't see a way forward, and I want you to listen to what God says. Verse fourteen: My presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I'd have been going, well, I need a little bit more. <laughs> Something that, God's in my presence. will go with you, and I'll give you rest. Now, Moses actually did ask for more. Moses said, I pray you, show me. Now, what was that? I I, I don't know exactly per se, but I I think of this. Have you ever been in a place in life where you just are at the end and you just say, God, if if you'll just show me yourself, I, I can make, you know, if you'll just, let me just see you. And what does God say? God responds, you cannot see my face. For no man can see me and live. What did God do then? You remember the story? Put him in the cleft, you know, a little carved out portion of a hill, of a rock cliff. And God covered him with his hand, anthropomorphic phrases. He's describing God as having hands and stuff. Why? So we, so we kind of get a picture of what's going on. God's a spirit but he uses these terms. He covered him with his hand in the cleft of the rock, and then God passed by. God went by, because, man, if Moses caught a glimpse of this, he'd be dead. But God passed by, and then when it was only his backside, so to speak, God removed his hand that Moses could catch a glimpse. Now, back to John. I think we can say, Jesus is the answer to Moses' prayer. Because Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. And we see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, he exegetes the Father. Now think biblically, theologically, wait a minute, no one can see God and live. How is it that we can see the Father and live? Think about it. Because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus died the death we deserved. He was buried and raised again. Because in Christ Jesus. We're clothed in his righteousness. And we can see the father. And live. There is no greater joy. In the universe. Than to see God. And live. Many. We'll see him and be separated. But in Christ, we see God and we live. Y'all, that is, you can't find a deeper, greater, wider, stronger joy. The presence of Christ, God is with us. The provision of Christ, his resources, his grace, inexhaustible. The revelation of Christ, seeing Jesus, we see God well, in 1906, Grantland Rice wrote a sequel to Casey at the Bat. You know, it's just, it's absolutely un-American to go down swinging, isn't it? We can't have that. So, so he, rewrote, he rewrote, you know, the poem called Casey's Revenge. <laughs> in, this, in this poem, Casey's team is down three runs in the bottom of the ninth now. So now they're down three runs, bottom of the ninth. Guess what happens? Casey gets up to bat. Guess what happens on the first two pitches? Strike, right. strike, And finally, Casey's going to swing up, you know, pull, pull the bat up. And I know you're not going to believe this in this poem, but then Casey hits a home run. Didn't see that coming, did you? Huh? <laughs> and, and the poem, he's, he, 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 he hits a home run so uh, far, they never find the ball. Uh, but he does come back. And I got to say this one time in the poem for my daughter, because they always tease me about saying poem rather than poem. <laughs> and and I had to I'd say it once. I won't say it next time. I've been good all the way through. In the poem, uh, he puts a nod to the... To the original. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, dark clouds may hide the sun. Oh, somewhere bands no longer play and children have no fun. And somewhere over blighted lives, there hangs a heavy pall. But Mudville hearts are happy for Casey hit the ball. You know, you just go, it's a turn, isn't it? It's like, you know what? There There is sadness everywhere. There is no joy in places. There's places where kids are crying and it's just a dark pall. But in Mudville, Casey hit the ball. Listen, John invites us to throw the bat away. Have no confidence in Casey. Any Casey. Anything that you feel like needs to happen for joy, needs to not happen for joy. And instead, come and find our joy in the reality of the incarnation. What we're celebrating. Jesus has come. Come. He's come in the flesh, fully God, fully man. The presence of Jesus is my joy. The provision of Jesus is my joy. The revelation of Jesus is my joy. Nothing can touch that. Let's pray together for our so what, if I can lead you in these moments. Before we head back into the clamor of the season. Let's realign our joy. Oh great God. Our heavenly father we bless your name above all names. You are our shepherd and we are the sheep of your pasture. Lord we don't know where to go for water or food. But you lead us to both. We're not fast enough to flee our enemies, nor strong enough to defeat them. We're helpless, apart from you, but you rescue us and fight on our behalf. And Lord, this morning, we confess that much of our joy is self-generated and outwardly defined. And it often has very little to do with who you are. In all that you are, in all that you've done, in every promise in your word. But more to do with who we are, what we can do, and what life brings our way. We confess that today. And I'm going to invite you right now, just as the Spirit brings it to mind, would you confess where your confidence has been or is in Casey's back? Rather than in God and what he's done. Would you just say that to the Lord? Would you offer that as a confession? Just name those things. Father, we will walk out of here in a moment and life will overwhelm us. And these quiet moments will be a distant memory. Would you, by your spirit and your word and your people, help us to encourage one another to keep finding our joy in you and you alone? May we look back with a smile at your first advent. And may we look forward to your second with a confident longing. And standing here in between with rocks in our shoes and dust in our eyes, may your presence be our joy to such a degree that those who don't know you would bow their knees here in this community where we live, work, and play into the four corners of the world. God, we thank you for for a joy that is big enough and strong enough and sure enough to actually hold our grief and sadness at the same time. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. Stand together, I would like to dismiss you the benediction from the letter of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great, guess, joy. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless.